Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. It's Dialogue De Novo. I'm Jake Rome. Please like us on Facebook, follow us on the Twitter, and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. My guests today are Ted Donner. Ted Donner is an attorney. He is a professor at Loyola teaching jury selection. And he is a former member of Second City Improv. My other guest is Paul Lisnek. Paul Lisnek hosts Politics Tonight on WGN Chicago. He is the host of the Behind the Curtain podcast. He is a former jury consultant and the author of a new book, Assume Guilt. Ted Donner and Paul joined the show to discuss their former days as jury consultants working on notable cases like the O.J. Simpson murder trial and the Casey Anthony trial, and it was a great show. So please, without any further ado, give it up for the great and powerful Ted Donner and Paul Lisnick. All right, all right, perfect. Memories. We're all making memories now. Right. I think I have this, like... Uh, but, yeah, so we're good to talk about some jury selection stuff, some jury consulting stuff. Sure. Don't go too technical. He'll be the expert on it. Like I said, it's been a while for me. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I wanted to put this together because, one, name recognition from you, Ted Donner, obviously, Professor Donner, sorry. Uh, he's my professor at the moment for jury selection, so I, I thought that would be cool because... I thought wait, it was because of his criminal record. Yeah, well, we there can get into that, too, right? Yeah. <laughs> this was my dean, Dean Lisnick, as well. Wow. I, used to I would have been yours if I was still there. Yeah. Well, so that's how you two met. It was yeah, a student it, teacher, right? Oh, student yeah. teacher. Yeah. Student yeah. teacher. Do you know who I just talked to the other day? Patrick Murphy? Oh, did you really? Well, I got a job 34 years ago. He brought it up again. He goes, you got me that job, and I'm still teaching. He's, he's there. He has managed to keep his schedule along with mine for 20-some-odd years now. So Later. I see him in the hall every day before class. And I have for Tell him I said I. I can remember. I shall. I just talked to him. Cool. So uh, why don't we just jump into how you guys got into jury consulting, what it is. I mean, I, I think that there's probably a lot of, that we have some non-lawyers who listen who may not know what jury consulting is. And we, there's probably a good percentage of lawyers who listen that don't really know the nuts and bolts of it either. Okay. So why don't we just dig into that? I know you own a company that does that kind of work. So talk about that a little bit. Well, so my start in jury consulting uh, was an interesting path because at the time that I found out about the field, I didn't know there was one. Right. And at the time that I found out about the field, a lot of people did not know that there was such a thing called uh, jury or trial consulting. So I had practiced law for a few years. Uh, it was not my favorite thing to do. And I then took a dean position at Loyola Law School, which was a lot more fun. Mm -hmm. uh, but I always knew that wouldn't be the end of the road either. So I would be was doing a lot of public speaking and things. But I come across this um, uh, article information about jury consulting, about the field. And um, I was fascinated about that because my, my background had been, uh, at that point, I held my law degree but a PhD in communication. And I was always trying to figure out how could those two things come together. I didn't know how they would come together, didn't see it. So I come across these articles about the field. 
it was new to me, had no idea. This is probably mid eighties. And, um, and I start kind of contacting people. One of the people I contacted was a guy named Dr. Ron Matlin, who, uh, who I'm sure my, my colleague Ted Donner knows well. And I, and Ron and I have been friends now for, for decades. Um, and at that time it was a name that I knew. I mean, a lot of people who were in the jury consulting society at that time, which now is known as the American Society of trial consultants. At that time, it had a, a different name. Um, I think it was the American Jury Society or something like that, and they wanted to expand it from, from juries. Um, but anyway, so it, all these people who were involved were names that I knew from just reading articles about their research and their work, and Joyce Songus and David Island. And so to find that there was this organization where they were combined was fascinating to me. So I got very excited, um, checked it all out, went to a meeting, and then as I am wont to do within a few years, joined the board, became president of the organization. Uh, and at the time I joined, there were, I don't remember how many members, not a lot, maybe a couple of hundred. Um, and then by the time I became president, we were hitting 400, 500, and I have no idea what it is anymore. It's still that level. The level okay. you set it at is where it's basically stayed. Because I thought it's gone higher than that over time. And now the student memberships, it, what started as a fairly academic exercise, even in the jury consulting world, became much more of a business focus and entity. So that, that's how I got started in it mm-hmm. from the get-go in terms of learning about the field. Paul was a teacher and a dean at Loyola. And so in the mid-1980s, as he was starting to get that, Thomson Reuters was also trying to react to what was going on in that Baxton versus Kentucky case, Mm -hmm. which was the penultimate decision to say that, yes, you can limit peremptory challenges, and you need to when race is involved. So they had all these books that were out there talking about how to use race and how to use religion and how to use gender to decide who your jurors should be. And they had to get them off the shelf. Sure. And they had one out of Texas that had been among the different books that um, Judge Justice Marshall had talked about in the course of the dialogue for that decision that they gave to Paul to take over. And he was going to start updating the book a little bit each year. And he hired me as a law student to work with him on it. Because I didn't want to do any work. <laughs> well, <laughs> truth be told, the guy is, was extraordinarily generous with me on every level. It was just an opportunity that I I walked into because he held the door open for me. Mm-hmm. Paul said, I'm putting your name on it. I like what you did. And it, the first supplement came out as being written by Lisnick and Donner. And the next year he switched it around and it became Donner and Lisnick. And That was nice of you. Then He paid me. I didn't, I didn't do this for nothing. He used to give me checks and now those stopped. <laughs> We're going back to Lisnick and Donner, by the way. <laughs> and, and one more mischeck, and it's just going Lisnick again. We're pulling off completely. <laughs> so be prepared for all of that. Um, so I, I think a, like, a lot of people view Jerry Consulting as like this sort of cloak and dagger, like somehow like people enter this black box and then somehow a jury comes out on the other side. And I know that They've you got guys, it right. That's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was wondering if you could maybe elucidate a little bit of what the process is like and what kind of research goes into it. Uh, I know that you both have worked on notable cases, so maybe within that framework, what goes into a case you know that that you work on, and and how do you decide how to pick and choose a jury? So before I answer that question, and and, and Ted might step in, I feel like I want to give just a little more history to this in terms of personal history. Absolutely. Uh, And and the reason for that is because, first of all, when I started off, the first group that I worked with who began to train me um, was David Island, uh, who Mm. has passed away recently, but very well known, and TBCI is his company. Uh, And that's where we were working on big cases and big corporate cases. And from there, I went to Songus and Associates with Joyce Songus and Dennis Brooks, and Joyce has since passed away. Um, But they were doing very high-profile cases and political cases. 
places. And then I joined Joel and Demetrius, who was with Richard Gabriel at the time. Mm-hmm. That's when OJ happened. Right. And uh, and not only OJ, but Heidi Fleiss. And all. so here I am finding myself involved in these notable cases, right. specifically OJ. And it was really Joel and Demetrius, with all due respect to, at that time, Richard and myself, Joe Ellen was the name. That was who everybody wanted to go after. And we were, we kind of joined along uh, at the beginning. Richard has since made quite the name for himself, that company being Decision Analysis, which still exists. And I'm part of that. And so is, so is Ted. Works. No. You're not? I'm not part of that company. I work with Richard on the book and other things. But, oh, gotcha. Uh, okay. Is, is that where uh, Dan Wolf is? is, is no, Dan um, Wolf is at, a, is at a company in Chicago. Oh, okay. Never mind. Continue. So, uh, but, but certainly we work together on a variety of things. And, um, and, and so that's kind of where the big cases start. And so the, for me, because since I do media now, the question is, when did that happen? So just mm-hmm. to address that, for me, it was OJ. Uh, it was when I started doing OJ, NBC called, NBC News, and said, you know, we're familiar with the fact that you do. I was doing some television work. Mm-hmm. Um, we like what you do. You're good. Would you be willing to stay out of the, you actually be in the courtroom watching things, but would you stay off the table um, and, and work for us? And I thought, well, I could either, you know, deal with the craziness of, of OJ on a daily basis and try and sit at the table, or I could deal with the craziness, but do it from a limousine. And uh, and so I, I went <laughs> to the call. End, yeah, tough call. <laughs> I went for the NBC contract and for the next eight months, however long that trial went on. Um, it was limos and Today Show and, and Nightly News and all this kind of stuff, and it was absolutely fascinating. So that's when the shift to full-time TV came in for me. Mm-hmm. But in terms of picking the jury, what's fascinating is there's lots of things that go into it. I had written a book after OJ called The Hidden Jury, where I talk about what jury consultants oh, do. Sure. But I did Fox. Great book. I did a Fox New the morning. You know, Fox Fox in the morning, Fox and the Friends, whatever they're called, Fox Friends in the Fox morning. And Friends, yeah. So I did this in the morning, and I, we might have some Fox supporters out there. So I'm not saying anything negative, but I will say that um, first of all, one of the hosts who is still on there sits on a cushion that he kind of folds over. I guess he's not as tall as one thinks. And, um, uh, but anyway, so they said to me, they hadn't read my book. <laughs> they hadn't read my book when we got together, but they had seen The Runaway Jury, mm-hmm. the John Grisham book. Oh, yeah. And mm-hmm. so their question to me, rather than trying to sound like they read the book, was to say, well, we've seen the movie. Is your book like the movie? Is that what, you know, where jury consultants are chasing people down the streets with a camera in their briefcase? And and I said, yes, that 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 is how, what we do. <laughs> and it got, the guy goes, really? I went, no. That's what we do. And we backed up. So anyway, there's such a misconception over what jury consultants do and all that. There, I do want to give kudos to the John Grishams of the world who put it out there. Right. He actually did it because he insulted jury consultants at one point in his career. And his mea culpa on that was writing. Um, the, was it the Rainmaker? Uh, the Rainmaker? Oh. Now I just forgot. I just I just said the name of the book. Runaway Jury. Sorry, yeah, right. The Runaway right. Jury okay. was right. his sort of. I'm sorry. Jury consultants are really very important. <laughs> uh, his sort of thank you there. So a lot of misunderstanding about what consultants do. That's the piece I wanted to add in before we talk about what we do. Can sure. I stick in two thoughts on that? First and foremost, I remember when Paul was excluded from the OJ case because he had to go work with the studio, and there was a lot of nervousness on the defense side. For what it's worth that he wasn't going to be able to work on it. And mm-hmm. she's not going to tell you that. But Paul Lissnick was missed. And there was a lot of fear that without him involved, they weren't going to have quite the team that they wanted to have. They did so, all right without me. Yeah, they did. <laughs> yeah, at least on the first day. <laughs> oh, yeah. How did the case turn and out again? <laughs> he walked. I think he walked. Wasn't that right? First one, fine. Second that, one. Yeah. And that, that was, was all about the jury selection. That was all about oh, yeah, the jury selection. That was indeed. Well, yeah, yeah. That was. We've talked about that in class. Mm-hmm. And you have sitting next to you, Paul Lisnick's fiction book on juries, which is Assumed Guilt, which... Which every listener should be going to order now on Amazon.com. Yeah, we plug that? We'll talk, to, we'll talk about the book. Don't you worry. Ah, okay. <laughs> I just thought you carried it around like a Bible. Uh, yeah, so uh, maybe... <laughs> I wasn't responsive to your question. I'm putting it... Why don't, you start, I, why don't you start, Ted, about what it is we do, and I'll, yeah, I'll right, put right, it on right, the right, final right. for next week. <laughs> <laughs> please, 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 go from there. 
What was the question again? <laughs> so, <laughs> how do we start? I, what do we do? Yeah, I'm hoping that we can get a little bit into the mechanics of jury selection. You know, sure. like it, maybe because you did analysis on the OJ case, that might be a helpful one. I know you've worked on some other high profile cases. I just I want to make this interesting to the audience in a way where we're not just talking about some hypothetical case because I, I think people really relate to these these cases. So, well, I can start with the OJ case. Yeah, well, I, let's I said do that. that was all. So, jury consultants do a whole range of things from research before a case ever gets underway to try and determine what kind of people should sit on the jury, who's more pro-defendant or pro-plaintiff or pro-prosecution or who isn't. And um, and then there, and there's focus groups to test issues. So there's we can talk about some of the different kinds of things that jury fun. consultants do. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I think the public pretty much just thinks about this profession when they're thinking about um, when they're thinking about jury selection, that, that, right. that's where they picture us. But, and then sometimes that matters and sometimes it, it always matters, but not as much. But the OJ Simpson case was one in which very briefly, both sides, uh, everybody filled out a, was it 60 page questionnaire? I think long. it was, it was Three one of the longest questions. ever at that time. OJ broke all rules for everything. Mm-hmm. And Judge Ito at that time, just whatever happened was fine with him. He just <laughs> let the lawyers do their thing. Well, because there was so much TV coverage. Sure, he just, sure. he just, he couldn't, the media thing really right, the scrutiny. modifying yeah. how it was happened. But anyway, so both sides had the same research in that case. They both knew what a pro-plaintiff or pro-defense, I should say pro-prosecution, or pro-defense juror looked like. Um, and so it's kind of amazing that why would a jury then do what it did in about three and a half hours of deliberation mm. after an eight-month trial if if both sides knew? The prosecution um, used a jury consultant named Howard Varinsky, also very well-known, very successful. So he worked with Marsha Clark and that team in the research, and Joel and Demetrius and Richard Gabriel uh, and others on our team worked on the defense end. And But the bottom line to it was, why would the prosecution misread it? And and the answer is that Marsha Clark, and I believe even in all the TV specials, this is nothing that got hidden. Marsha like, Clark right. often said... When she looked at that research, she rejected it. Mm. And she said, no, this is not a defense juror. This is a prosecution juror. I win cases in front of these people all day long. They both ended up putting the same kinds of jurors onto the jury, and it was all pro-defense. Marsha Clark just didn't think they were. Mm. My understanding is Johnny Cochran once told me the story, which was the night after the jury selection, the defense team had a champagne toast mm. and basically said mm. it doesn't get any better than that, this. That, right. Um, yeah. and, and it's true. Some of those jurors were just, you look at them, they were fascinated with OJ mm. uh, and watching him, you know, sit there and, and well, anyway, so that that's how that's how I think that happened. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about those focus groups because uh, I, I, we haven't gotten super deep into those in class. What are those like? How do you, how do you put together a cross-section? It's kind of like if you've ever gotten an ad for somebody looking for people for a marketing focus group where mm-hmm. you're asked to come in and try a product out, and then you fill out a survey and tell people. The difference is that when you're doing a focus group for juries, you break them up into juries and have them go into different rooms to deliberate, and you watch them through a reverse glass mirror and knock down a few single malts and laugh at them and (laughs) and make notes about where the issues were, what it was that made a given group of people decide to get excited, what resonated for them, who took on a leadership role and why. You you just mark out what's going on. And the fun time to do it is when you got a bunch going on at once and you can just walk from mirror to mirror to mirror. Mm. And then you can see if if the pattern stayed the same from one room to the other. Mm. And what you get out of that is at least some understanding of what makes people think. The thing that people do during trial, the correspondence that is short shadow juries, where you have a group of people sit in the back of the courtroom watching the trial while the jury is watching it, and then this group you poll, because you can't poll the actual jury, oh, and you're okay. able to use that polling to give you a sense of whether it's resonating or not. 
I was saying, and I referenced the shadow juries and all. I call them mirror juries in the assumed guilt book because I think shadow jury was a term that was copyrighted uh, by somebody. Right? Yeah, I think so. So oh, I, I, I avoided using that. Um, but here's the thing that people don't understand about juries. I mean, lay people, which is, you know, if, if you have these focus groups, Ted is talking about go on and you have three or four in various rooms and you win the focus groups, that's it. We got a winning case. We're good. Or you lose the focus groups. Oh, we're screwed. We're done. We're done. And no, that's not from the jury consultant's perspective. We don't really care if you win or lose. We want to know what is guiding those perspective, those those uh, practice jurors to their verdict. What's What evidence is influencing them? What isn't? What are they missing? What are they needing? So I often told clients, you know, the best thing that can happen to you is to lose the focus right, group. Right. Because that's when we're going to learn the most about mm. what you need, why it didn't work, what was missing, and, and whether or not we do have what a, the real jury would need when the time comes. Mm. Mm-hmm. Amy Singer in the Casey Anthony case, when she came in on it, this is the last one that I worked on with Richard. She did the local work, and she created a mere jury, I guess I should be calling it, out of the Internet and used Google searches and watching to see what people were talking about in chat rooms and on Facebook and everything to serve as a public barometer of what was going on during trial during the day. It was a fascinating way to do it. It brought it to a whole other electronic level. But what Paul's saying is exactly right, which is that the whole process is one that it's why they call them now trial consultants more than jury consultants, because once you get a sense of what matters to that group, you then not only tailor your voir dire to finding people that will be receptive to those messages, but then you start tailoring the way the testimony and the documents are presented so that you get that message built and heightened for those jurors that are going to be receptive to it. And to the area, you know, different jury consultants will have different areas of, of expertise or specialization. For me, I've always been about assisting in writing the opening statements and the closing arguments. There are those, even in the jury, even in the science of the jury and stuff, that was, I was glad that people like Ted and Richard, you know, I would do that stuff, but it wasn't what brought me alive. What brought me alive really was to work with a lawyer and draft, help them. Once we knew this research, what needed to be done to come across, because I always loved the courtroom. I always loved, in law school, I was known as the death partner um, in moot court, and that was because... I got high scores, the highest scores on oral argument, but I had hated writing. So mm-hmm. my partner would always write the brief. I would do the oral argument. They would, <laughs> they would lose, and I would continue on in the competition. <laughs> the death partner. Uh, <laughs> but I, but I, loved, I loved working on, on arguments. And I, if I can tell you one case that I, that I worked on, it was called the, the uh, Meyer Blinder case. Meyer Blinder was um, known as the Penny Stock King. Now, I'm going back few decades on this, mm. but but it's an incredibly important and famous case in Las Vegas. And this guy, you know what penny stocks are, you buy them, sure, whatever. Sure. But what this guy had essentially was a pyramid scheme. Mm-hmm. Uh, you bought it, but he controlled everything. He just, he controlled all the stock. He decided who would sell, who would get, what the rates were. So when you thought you were making money, it's only because he decided that you right, were right, making right. money. So the feds go after him. A guy named um, Howard Zlotnick. Uh, worked with the, the um, DOJ at that time in, in Vegas, or knew about my work because of OJ and others, and, and so called me in to work on that. And, uh, and essentially, while we did a variety of focus groups and things, I, was, I think where I was critical was in helping them put together, especially the opening statements in that case, because they were very concerned. Now, depending on the age of your listeners here, we're about to either get through to them or not. Um, but one of, the people, <laughs> one of the people that the defense was expected to call to defend Meyer Blinder was Wayne Newton. Ted, 
I know who Wayne Newton is. Donka Shane. Exactly. Nicely done. Nicely done. But I guarantee you, anybody else listening is going, what? Who? What? I do this show for me, so it's fine. All right. (laughs) So Donka Shane, of course, Wayne Newton's first hit. He's been a star since he's been like 15. I think he's about 170 now. Um, That sounds right. Still looks the same. Yeah. And by the way, if if any of your listeners, if they land in Las Vegas, they will leave Las Vegas on Wayne Newton Boulevard. Mm -hmm. So this guy is a big deal. Well, he was going to testify, and the prosecution was terrified about that mm-hmm. because aside from the evidence what do these Las Vegas jurors do when Wayne Newton takes the witness stand sure. and says right. and defends the defendant mm-hmm. well long story short was what I added to that case and I, I think it was critical but in, in the opening statement when the lawyers can or they chose to talk about who would be testifying the, the prosecution got up but rather than saying Wayne Newton would testify in the case I simply had them reference him in a way that, in a way that essentially what he said was I still have the headlines on this uh, what he said was the way this blinder guy worked was he would own all the tickets, just like you buy stock, all the tickets of the house, say to a Wayne Newton concert. That was the reference. Interesting. And so essentially they decide what you would pay for a Wayne Newton ticket, and they controlled it. And this went on and on. The headline in the newspaper the next day, Big Stuff in Vegas, was prosec- something like prosecutor mentions Wayne Newton in opening statement, um, and Wayne Newton was never called. And this guy was, and this guy was, was uh, found guilty. Uh, in fact, he was so certain he wouldn't be found guilty, he ultimately, in court during his sentencing, lunged for the prosecutor and then went away even for more time than he oh, otherwise geez. was going to. But yeah, this was just not, because this was, well, anyway, this was not a guy who thought he was going to be convicted. But it was understanding the strongest strategy of the defense mm. and bringing it over to the prosecution and making it theirs was critical in that case, I think. How much do does this... Um, how much does the knowledge acquired during these focus groups and during the preliminary research transfer from case to case like how much is there an acquisition of knowledge like where you will be able to read people or do the facts of each specific case really like is it kind of like a tabula rasa like everyone you have to start from scratch that was a legal term Scratch. Tabula rasa. <laughs> and scratch i think both of those i gotta scratch my tabula rasa if you don't mind. <laughs> I, you know i'm i, I always say when I'm, I, I talk to a lot of lawyers, right, when you're settling cases, and people will say to you when they call, in my X years of practice, I've never seen this or I've never seen that. Mm-hmm. It, that's a phrase that to me betrays laziness. You really, you are going to see some things that stay the same from one case to the next. Defense lawyers, or defense jurors need to understand grays, prosecution jurors, black and white, right? Those kinds of truisms can can stay the same from one case to the next, but as a practical matter, you're going to do much better in every case, no matter what your role is, looking at it with fresh eyes. Mm-hmm. And so I, I would caution you not to think about what stays true from one case to the next as much as what tools you can use and how you develop them. You've got to be creative every time. You, you, I, nothing should be the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ted's absolutely right. And in fact, again, it's another OJ reference, but whenever you do television on any case today, jury consultants are always asked, who do you want to be on the jury? Who do you want on the jury? What are the demographics? Mm. And the thing that the consultant always has to say is, demographics are the least predictive of what somebody's going to do, with the exception of OJ, where they were predictive. Right. Um, but generally speaking, they're not going to be. So when you have a particular case, you know, Ted is right. Every case, I don't care if it's another car accident or another med mal case, the bottom line is every case has its own facts, its own people. The the, the, the plaintiff who is more sympathetic than, than the plaintiff in the last case you tried, the defendant who is 
more sympathetic or less. The, every case has its own factors. So as a jury consultant, yes, and I'm sure every jury consultant, I know our colleague Richard Gabriel will, you know, he'll talk about, look, here's what I've seen. I've seen this kind of thing happen in other cases, but that doesn't mean it's what's happening here. He's just setting it out as maybe a baseline for something you can say, look, well, I've, so. I've seen this in the past, mm-hmm. um, but now let's see what we have here. It may be similar. Will it be exact? It might even look exact, but nothing's exact because every case has its own nuances. Mr. Lesnick, you just published a book, Assume Guilt. This is your first foray into fiction. Is that is that right? Yeah, 13 nonfiction books preceded, many for lawyers, uh, obviously, uh, some not. Um, but yeah, that was my first effort uh, of a fiction book, which yeah, that, that took 10 years to do and went under many transitions um, for a host of reasons, mainly because my career has changed since I've started that. Mm-hmm. So initially when I started writing it, it was all about the jury consultant because that was my world. Uh, at the time and the public speaking that I do. But when television kind of took over my life in more of a full-time way, I had to introduce uh, more of an interest of, uh, I think of a media flavor to it. So mm-hmm. so there's now characters in there, or actually almost all of them, if people who read this in the Chicago area, if they watch WGN or others, they're gonna recognize names in there because I just use uh, names without permission that, uh, <laughs> that people use. In fact, I did the morning show to talk about the book one morning and I, I made that point. I said, you know guys, Larry and Robin are the morning anchors, Larry right. Potash and Robin Baumgarten. And I said, you know, actually I, um, I use your names, like Larry, you're, it's, I use Potash Pharmaceuticals uh, in the case. And I said, and the publisher <laughs> asked me if I had permission to do it. And I said, no. And he, he said on air, I can sue you. I said, you could. And Robin said, all right, we've got a class action suit going here. Um, but the reality is I don't think any of them care. Yeah. I hope not. And uh, it's all in fun. But but the book itself was to, to for once to make the jury consultant the hero. Again, right. in the John right. Grisham book, you know, I suppose that's happened, right. but it's not usually the focus of the book. So that was the goal. You know, yeah, there's a maybe a murder in there. There's different things going on. But, but I wanted the jury consultant to get the focus instead of just the lawyer. Oh, and he, the jury consultant in the book whose name is Matt Barlow, Matt named after my dog Matthew, um, and Barlow after a friend of mine in San Francisco who, actually his name is Jake Barlow, and I actually wanted that to be the name. That's a great name. It's a great name, but friends of mine, I'll plug them, friends of mine, Linda Kenny and Michael Bodden, Dr. Michael Bodden, you know them, Ted, very famous forensic uh, expert in every case you can ever think of, and Linda Kenny, very famous trial lawyer who did the Jason Williams or uh, right the whoever the football player was who well these I'm confusing uh, things I'm blanking but, myself well there was um, a football player who was found guilty and then he killed himself in his jail cell oh Aaron Hernandez Aaron Hernandez thank you yeah. yes that was Linda's case and then Jason Hernandez, Jason Williams was the basketball player mm. who shot somebody or whatever. Richard worked on Aaron Hernandez yeah and that but that was also brought in by Linda got it so uh, well anyway so they had a character named Jake in their best-selling books and so they asked they said hey would you mind like maybe using a different first name i'm not sure so i went to the dog but anyway i'm uh, partial to the, i'm partial to the name yeah like, uh jake or, or Matt. we can call you chewy that's what i call my dog He's, yeah that's fine i know i know <laughs> <laughs> anyway so so that's kind of where where the, the focus came from but i wanted it to be uh, but he's a lawyer and and a lot of people ask me whether i'm matt barlow in the in the book yeah i am i mean to a great extent i am um because of the background and all that and because of a lot of his quirks and things he likes pancakes he like all the things Yes, that's all me. Um, but he's also, you know, his own character. Yeah, it's a lot of fun to read because, uh, I mean, being from Chicago, well, being in Chicago, 
all the locations, like, you know, you're very clear about, like, where this is, like, Lincoln Park, and then right. you reference, like, the cultural center downtown, and it's it's cool because you can just immediately picture what's happening in what, your head. One of the reviewers made a comment. He said, if you're from Chicago, you really enjoy this book because you're going to feel like you're on the 151 riding down the street <laughs> seeing these things. Right. And if you're not from Chicago, you're going to get an accurate portrayal. So I didn't... Yeah, nothing frustrates me more than when you see somebody, like, on in a movie, and they're driving south on Lakeshore Drive, but and for some... sudden they're... Well, yeah, and all of a sudden they're they're in D.C. or or you know or, or they claim they're going somewhere where you're not getting to off Lakeshore Drive. It drives me crazy. Yeah, so yeah. all of those directions and references are all actually accurate. There is a reference to a Granny's Pancake House, which which Matt eats at all the time. Yeah. That is real. It's just gone. It's just become yolk. On oh, the corner okay. of the yeah, 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 yeah. Pine Grove. Yeah, yeah. But the woman who owned it, and the names are, some names have changed, some not, but but the woman who owned it was a wonderful friend of mine, and she she was great. She was crazy. She was a lottery player. She was a smoker. The smoker and the drinking of the brandy, that yeah. was her. <laughs> and uh, so it's, it's, all, it's all based in, in truth, actually. Granny's Pancake House just... You could taste it. That was a real nice description. Well, she really made mm-hmm. banana pancake. And actually, I'll take it to a Loyola tie because yeah, I used to teach it. evening classes. And I because I taught three to seven to ten at night. Do you do that? Do you have like I do that six to nine? But yeah. Okay, so I make I used to make students bring food. You don't do that. No, I didn't ever think of that. I'll think about it. So halfway, <laughs> Jake tonight. <laughs> halfway through, we would take a break, and the yeah. theory was that every week a student would be responsible for bringing in some food right. for the break. Not so uh, it's a great idea. Yeah. So uh, one week, this woman uh, brings in some food. Her name is Christina Sofiakis. I guess well, she's not anymore. She's married, but that was her name. So she brings in these pancakes, these banana pancakes, apple pancakes, and whatever. And I looked at from Grant. well, I didn't know. <laughs> so when she says, I said, "Oh, what'd you bring in?" She goes, "I've got." banana pancakes and, and apple pancakes they're they're from my mom's restaurant and i said well i gotta tell you <laughs> i said i know where the best banana pancakes are on the planet and i i just don't think these are going to match up if you don't mind and she said where do you get them i said granny's she said that's my mother <laughs> wow. that's where these are from so oh, wow. from that day uh we, we said that in class whatever her she told her mother i never she i never paid in that restaurant again as much as i would tip very well <laughs> uh, but i mean she always granny always picked up the checks always just it just became this very i mean i would have parties i invited her to my home it just became a very close friendship after that that has and, to have been uh, a final degree and uh <laughs> yeah, right? yeah i think she did well she was smart anyway thank goodness thank God. and now she's a psychologist she does all sorts of great things out there and christina does a great 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 stuff so and in fact in my kitchen i have which i have a lot of animation art and um there is this very large oil portrait or something which is from granny's it was a gift from granny's when she when she she closed down so that's why i named it granny's and i didn't call it yoke but what's there now <laughs> is a place called yoke which is now owned by her grandson oh, so well, keep it's all kind of all in the family. comparable to what granny's was because um they don't have the banana pancakes and all that so it's a little more it's a little more for the y- yeah, younger okay. yuppie yeah, yeah. kind of whatever today when i went in there it was sort of like bring me a cup of coffee right well, I, so I, assume I, guilt is available on Amazon.com. Yes, and yes. Amazon.com. Or wherever, at bookstores as well. I believe bookstore in, near you. I, I help in the independent bookstores. I don't, I don't. I mean, people can do borders and stuff, but I, but I live in a neighborhood where there's unabridged books and stuff that carry it. I like people to go to these independent bookstores where they can support. Yeah, it's a good read. It's a quick read. Um, and uh, yeah, it goes real real fast. You well, know, you, it moves, moves fast. All right, uh, one final question for the both of you. And uh, then I want to thank you guys both for coming. So... Law students, you know, um, you you communicate for a living. Ted, you, uh, Professor Donner, sorry, you obviously you write a lot. I know that you've gotten awards for your legal writing, and you have a treatise on Westlaw. Uh, what tips can you give law students who 
to better their ability to communicate and uh, to form a little bit of discipline in their in their writing and to keep a schedule and to just really own that craft of communication because I think that's really crucial to what you used to do in trial consulting and especially what you do now, Mr. Lisnick and. Uh, Professor Donner, you've been known to uh, to write it. Oh, well. call him Ted. It's okay. It's a podcast. I'm sitting next to the dean, so when you say that, I'm just getting all anxious. I, on the <laughs> other hand, would like to be called me Colonel, if you don't mind. I'd there you go. I am well, a Kentucky Colonel. Yeah, I so. can go and he put... was our placement dean. You know? He was an important guy. <laughs> yeah, I determined so. whether you got a job or whether I told people to stay away from you. Okay. Well. <laughs> so I Colin know. and Paul took me a long, long time. <laughs> I know exactly how you feel. Which I never actually gave you permission, if you think about it. Oh, good point. <laughs> Can I get permission now? After 30 years, it's probably uh, fine. Well, I'll kick that one to the colonel to start with. And, ah. uh, <laughs> well, on the writing thing, uh, I'll be practical in this way. And it, it, it kind of reminds me of a student. I used to teach ethics, uh, professional responsibility, and I always gave a final paper assignment to the students. And, and some, if there are law students listening to this, they may not be happy with this. But, um, you know, I write a lot. I've written a bunch of books. So I can remember getting... Um, a, these papers in from the students and not being impressed with the quality of writing that I was seeing. And I thought, you folks are third year law students. You're about to go in the real world. You're going to be writing briefs and, and, and I mean real briefs and I don't get it. And I'll never forget this one student who I gave a seat to and, you know, law students have not the best temper. And so, uh, you know, she came up and she yelled at me, you know, I've got, everybody gives me A's, whatever. And I said, then, you know what, you've been skating your way through because this is really poorly written. Um, and here's my advice, therefore. I think we write, we don't get a lot of good criticism from our, apparently, apparently, from our professors and from our teachers who, uh, whatever, however they're reading it, they're, you know, but I, I was trained at the University of Illinois, not just law school, but in communication, where I had some of the best professors who would, would literally correct everything there was to correct in a paper. My favorite, this is a paper story, but my favorite was sitting next to this student, graduate student, and he's going through page after page of type paper, like 10, 12 pages, and he's going, oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my. And I, I'm not seeing a red mark anywhere on it. And I wow. said, what? I don't understand. Why are you saying that? that? There's no red marks. He said, this isn't my typing. The professor had given him a 12 page single space critique on his, his paper, Jeez. correcting everything, walking him through and whatever the paper, his, the critique was longer than the paper he wrote. I mean, maybe not, but it pretty much. And so this guy freaked out, but that was the quality of the teaching that certain professors would take. And that's what I always took into it. So my point was that I always tell students, when you write a paper, what I used to do, I'd write a paper and I'd let it sit. Mm-hmm. And then I'd go back and read it and grade it as though you were, te- I'd always wanted to be a teacher. So I got to play teacher, edit your own paper, not immediately, let it sit for a day or two. If you have the time, mm-hmm. go back and read it like you're reading somebody else's paper and start to circle all of the grammatical errors and all these other things that, that just are a sign of, of something that's not well written. When you look at something again, that you've let sit for a while, you'd be amazing that you'll have some distance from it mm-hmm. and, and can actually, as though you're telling a friend, I got to change it. I got to change it. I've got to move in. That's my best practical advice for somebody to advice. just give some breath, go back, look at it and grade it. Like you are the teacher. John Cleese talks about the idea that when you are trying to be creative, there's, and there's another person that uses the same idea, but I can't remember who it is. You, you, it's like turning on the faucet. The first water is going to be dirty and gray and musty and, you got to let that out first before you get to the clean stuff and the stuff that's drinkable and usable. And so, to Paul's point, if you want to be a writer, write. You, know, you can crank out a lot more words if you just sit down and actually do it than if you spend a week thinking about it to come up with that perfect sentence. You know, so get it out there. Let the dirty water run a little bit before you get to the clean stuff. With computers now, you can actually go back and delete 
When I was in law school, I had to start all over again with a new piece of paper on a typewriter. You know, it's it's a much different world, and you can keep writing and doing things this way. I'll say one thing about communication generally, whether it's people, what they do orally, what they do in writing. I think the most important thing for law students is to get over the idea of playing lawyer. Mm. You know, people go into law school and they're like, okay, now I am going to be a lawyer. And they use legalese every chance they get. And they throw in the wherefores and the whereases and the third party this and the first party that. You had English language at your beck and call before you walked in the door. You should still remember that language and still use it because it's still the best language to use in an American courthouse. We don't talk to each other in practice with all the legalese. So you shouldn't be doing it in law school. Just learn how to translate it into English, and you're going to do fine. As a trial lawyer from the oral uh, verbal skills component, you know, when you think of the world's greatest lawyers, um, Clarence Darrow, before our time, but certainly recognized as one of the greatest, but Johnny Cochran, who I worked with mm-hmm. uh, and got to know, he wrote a forward for one of my books, um, or, or even current, or you know, somebody like a Phil Corboy, which is a name very important to... Uh, um, <laughs> yeah, to, to, right. To everybody, the Loyola world. Well, the problem is now, you know, Corboy's gone, and so you know, people know the name, but but you know, I saw him. I saw him in court. I saw him do his thing. Why was he as great as he was? Same thing with Johnny, because those were the kind of lawyers that if you were sitting on a jury, you looked at him and you didn't look at him and think of him as this highfalutin lawyer that you couldn't relate to. He was somebody you would want to sit and have a beer with or a glass of wine or something. He was you. You know, and, and, and he spoke the way you spoke, and, 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 and that's what, what Ted is saying. So I'm, I'm echoing that to say that's what makes the greatest the greatest. The other thing I would say is for students who are listening, um, who are just, you know, have to get into class, you can't perform, you can't be Johnny Cochran when you're not, or pick a current lawyer you want, mm-hmm. you know, um, Alan Dershowitz, whoever you're thinking about. But the bottom line is you have to be who you are and true to yourself. But always remember, and I always tell students this, when you are performing, or not performing, but when you're doing something in front of a class, and you're, oh, I'm nervous. No one's going to like me. Remember that your fellow students are looking forward to you being effective. Nobody wants to be bored. Nobody wants to sit there and get confused. Everybody wants to sit there and enjoy what they're hearing. So if you just remind yourself that my fellow students are rooting for my success, they want me to be good, and well because they're my fellow students, I actually can interact with them the way I would interact with my friends. It's just a skill you're going to continue to develop, and one day when you're the great lawyer like Ted Donner in front, <laughs> in front of the jury, that's a skill that's never going to go away. And you're going to talk to that group of people you don't know as well as you knew your, your students, but you're going to talk to them the same way. And as long as you have jurors who, who end up saying, I just like you, it doesn't mean you're going to win, by the way. You know, I've worked in a lot of the priest abuse cases, and I remember working, we represented the diocese, the church. And in a, in a case in Dallas, we got hit with an $81 million verdict, $81 million. And one of the jurors, though, went up to the lawyer I was working with and said, um, I got to tell you, you were the best. We, we really liked you. We, we just, we like you. And of course, his comment was, maybe next time you could like me a little less and go with the verdict in a different direction. <laughs> but the point is, that was a case there was no way to win. Right. But it wasn't, you know, there are, there are cases who have to vote a certain way in spite of a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't want them to do sure. that. This was a jury who said, no, no, we believe you. We trust you. You just had nothing. Yeah. But we liked you. And to mm-hmm. me, that was the best compliment he could have gotten. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for uh, coming on the show. Thank I you, appreciate Jim. your time. Pleasure. All right. Glad you're sending information to fellow students and, and whoever else is listening in as well. All right, that's the end. Thank you.